welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I am your host, Devin Becker, and I'm joined by uh, two excellent guests as usual. We've got Matt Dion here, a founder of Always Scheming and a Novik contributor, and Felipe Mata, head of, or Mata, sorry, almost got it right, <laughs> head of studio at Fun Plus. Uh, how are you guys doing? You guys have a good weekend? I had a great weekend. I played a lot of Diablo and a lot of Zelda. The, the RPG grind. <laughs> it's a great year for games, man. There's Absolutely. a lot of like amazing titles. Uh, the backlash like from COVID, right? Like, uh, where were all these games during COVID? So we could have enjoyed them, obviously. <laughs> we got them now, though. Assuming we don't get a COVID too. Oh uh, God, don't. Yeah, don't put I that. Uh, that jinx it, right? What's the line? Yeah, knock don't on put wood. That, uh, that hate on me, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got some good topics today. Uh, some interesting stuff around uh, MOBA, as in the abbreviation, uh, network acquiring Warcraft. FTC, of course, continuing the everlasting journey of Microsoft trying to acquire Activision Blizzard. Hidden Door launching an interesting AI game experiment that we'll get into. And EA splitting up its company into sports and entertainment. And that should be a fun one to dig into. Uh, so why don't we just dive right into the, the MOBA network acquisition? Yeah, sure. So um, this caught my eye. Um, there's a company called MOBA Network. They're a Swedish company, and they acquired another company called Wargraph for $53.9 million. I think it was roughly 50 million euro. Um, and the reason this caught my eye is not because I knew either of these companies going into it, but because Wargraph, uh, wa- Wargraphs is a solo founder bootstrapped company. So, you know, 50 million euro for one person is an incredible outcome. So I was curious what it was all about. And so um, Wargraphs makes uh, a number of apps, the biggest of which is called Porofessor. And it's basically like an analytics and kind of helper add-on to the Riot Games ecosystem, primarily League of Legends, but not exclusively. And it's built on top of Overwolf, which is like a UGC modding platform. Uh, so just to give you some examples, like Porofessor will tell you how to like build your deck in Legends of Runeterra or construct your squad in TFT, or they'll tell you like win rates or tendencies about your opponents in League of Legends and like which champions they pick or, you know, things like that. And, um, I think I read, um, Wargraphs had something like 800,000 DAU, yeah, 800,000 daily active users with over 10 million app downloads that's crazy for like you know one app that's not actually a game it's it's kind of complementary to a couple of existing games so i mean that was like kind of the headline for me is like this is amazing outcome for a one person company now it's not exactly 50 million all at once right um the acquisition is broken down into a 25 million euro initial payment plus additional consideration that uh, an additional maximum of 25 million euro more for EBITDA targets um, from 12 to 24 months post acquisition. So there's there's a bit of an earnout still, but I mean, even with that, like you got to commend the founder um, for accomplishing this. Um, his name is Jean Nicolas Mastin. I hope I'm saying that correctly. So, anyways, let me let me throw it to you guys, like. One, do you think that this model, this bootstrapped solo entrepreneur model is repeatable? Um, are there other like ecosystems out there beyond Riot that might support something like this? What do you think? I mean, so, I feel like I've yeah. seen a lot of like the stuff around this esports coaching kind of idea and like player analytics before. I'm just mm-hmm. kind of surprised that like this laid into it. We're seeing an acquisition like that or, you know, that much funny, especially for a solo job like that. Um, I, I got to wonder if there was like, also like they knew each other, they met and networked and like, there was a, a social connection there more than just a straight business acquisition. What do you think, Felipe? 
Yeah, I think like now with the advancements in AI, I think that we are going to see this more and more often, right? Like a single person that uh, has an idea and now has everything at their fingertips to actually complete the product by just themselves. Uh, so I think like potentially we could see more of this, like especially because now you can also like create art and other stuff that maybe you were limited. So sometimes like you know about coding, but you don't know about art or vice versa. But now you can leverage an AI, like really have a complete product. Uh, so I feel that we will see this more, more often. And maybe some ideas that are harder to build a business case around, and maybe companies don't, don't go for that, but uh, like people are passionate about that or they see the value of that for themselves. Then they build it like a toy project that eventually keeps growing and other people see the value and eventually come becomes a community like this one. That's an interesting point um, about AI and it, you know, like it really allows people who are passionate about a certain product or community to kind of just like chase an idea with relative ease. Um, this really resonates with me as someone who has recently been doing a bunch of like coding, coding on hobbyist projects with chat GPT, cause I know very little about coding myself. Um, but that's really interesting. Um, and I think it's a, you know, it's a very plausible thesis for how future like products might form in this manner. Just, just to add a little bit of context here, I, I wasn't really familiar with MOBA Network and what they do, but I'm looking at some of their other products and they're all kind of very similar. MobaFire.com, VaingloryFire.com, DotaFire.com. They've got apps for Hearthstone and Minecraft and uh, Diablo 3. Anyways, they, they aggregate a bunch of these like fan community products. So it makes, makes sense for them. This has got to be their biggest one by far. But anyways, um, I thought it was an interesting news story. Yeah, I got to wonder, like with that, with that AI, you know, model you're talking about, like, at first, like the hobbyist, you know, has some advantage, right? Because they're willing to dive into that experiment, uh, you know, and get that going. But it, it reminds me of what kind of happened in mobile, where, you know, like the, the indies would kind of come up with the new genres, and then the people with money would come in and just out market them. So I kind of wonder if we're, we're like in a similar situation where, you know, examples like this cool like worked for so i mean obviously we're not saying ai was involved in this one but like these kinds of things where like a solo person or a small like indie studio like comes up with something and it does well but then if it's successful we start to see like the bigger players come in and spend a lot more money marketing it and then just kind of outdo them but with what overwolf is kind of set up for with that sort of ugc stuff like i i mean do you guys think this is kind of a a good win for Overwolf in terms of like marketing uh, their potential. Cause I know they were pushing uh, pretty big over the last couple of years to try and be like a platform that people were really excited about. I think it's a big, big win for Overwolf. Like, I don't know their, their business intimately, but I know the other big announcement that they had uh, maybe like six months to a year ago was that they're going to be a part of the new um, Sims project, project Renee. Um, and they did an integration with Sims four uh, to bring mods to that game. So, I mean, they're definitely growing as a platform. I think it's a big win for them. You make an interesting point, Devin, about like competitive response from the incumbents. Like, you know, in some ways, this result is almost unique to Riot in the sense that like Riot allows them to, to exist. It's built off of Riot's APIs. So if Riot decided, hey, we're going to charge for our APIs, we're going to shut it down, like this product ceases to exist. But also Riot is like super player first and they want to encourage communities to like go deep on their hobbies, right? So not every company takes that same approach. So maybe this is like kind of a unique outcome, but um, I, I think there's, there's little bits. It's like, look, it's a good match for all the parties involved, right? Like it, it fits with Riot's ethos. Yeah, um, the solo entrepreneur thing fits with like the community forward uh, approach and it fits with Overwolf too, with what they're trying to do. Kind of, kind of a good win for everyone around then, I guess. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean a good amount of money for something like that as well, especially if they're just kind of aggregating it into their portfolio of like game analytics stuff they're doing. So, I mean, hopefully it's something that works out and it, I wish there was more companies being that friendly with their APIs. Um, I got to imagine like the alternative is uh, the AI stuff where it's like vision recognition of, stuff going on on the screen. The problem is like that starts to drift into looking like cheap kind of tools. 
and then it like gets blocked. And then you have that whole like back and forth of like, oh, I'm trying to make a something that's just collecting data, but it actually looks like it's cheating. And that, that ends up in a whole whole big fat mess. But uh, yeah, well, I guess we'll have to see how that goes, especially for Overwolf in general. But uh, into the into the fun of, of people not allowing things, uh, the FTC uh, deciding they, they also wanted to make sure they got their piece of blocking uh, Microsoft from their acquisition. Yeah. So one one more episode in this never-ending saga. So well, the the, the U.S. Uh, Federal Trade Commission has temporarily stopped Microsoft from buying Activision Blizzard, and this pause is is meant to allow the court to review the deal and decide decide if it's fair to the market. Uh, so it's just like uh, let's say buying there the time and making sure that nothing happens until they make a. A final decision. Uh, well, the uh, FTC is worried about competition issues, and uh, the UK has also blocked the deal due to concerns of uh, Microsoft dominating cloud gaming. So, yeah, uh, while Microsoft's plans to appeal the UK's decision, uh, they had this setback also in the US. So it it feels that. Um, the, more and more uh, resilient or like uh, uh, lack of appetite to see this deal happening is has been more explicitly mentioned over time. I would say tough times for for Microsoft. How, how do you see it? Yeah, what do you think, Matt? Given given the endless saga we've seen here, um, I'm not sure. I have a strong opinion. I think it's like just another, you know, another chapter in the story. Like. We, I think we kind of knew that the FTC was going to try and step in. And this is just, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, this is just them like stopping the deal from closing so that they can see through the rest of their complaint, make sure that that like runs its course through the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, to me, it feels like, um, like an administrative step, uh, a hurdle. It doesn't change the outcome necessarily. I still think that it's going to go through. Um, but that's just a hunch, you know? Um, if you look at the stock price, uh, I looked at Activision yesterday and it was like in the eighties and I believe the acquisition was like $95 per, sh- per share. So it's creeping closer, but markets have priced in some doubt still, um, which I think is reasonable, but, um, I, don't know, I think we still have a ways to go. Unfortunately, <laughs> like, you know, we thought this yeah. was going to be over in July and I don't see that happening. I think we still have a ways to go, unfortunately. Yeah, for me, it looks like it could be like kind of a PR movement, like uh, showing that, uh, okay, we have really like looked into detail of uh, everything related to this. And like we have really negotiated to have uh, the deal going forward only because it's a good deal for everybody and uh, won't cause any like third party issues and that's kind of like yes no like i believe last time we talked about this uh maybe not this group but uh we're talking about it every episode so uh (laughs) i think there was some discussion around that the deal was supposed to like close i think it was in july was like the deadline for the deal to close i mean is there like a certain duration for this ftc blocking it that that could go into actually uh, past that date, like it actually mess up the deal to where it has to be like kind of renegotiated. Like, what what impact could this have if it if it takes a long period of time and say runs into August? Yeah, I think like the the note says that the deal cannot happen after five days uh, after the FTC has made the resolution, and then there is no deadline for for that resolution as far as I know. So. Yeah, I wasn't aware of a deadline for the deal to close. My my understanding was that it was an estimate from Microsoft and Activision when the deal was first consummated that, hey, we expect this to close in July of next year, but I don't know that it was a formal deadline. I could be wrong. Though. Hopefully not in that case, right? Because it sounds like they might not make if it was, right? Uh, but I mean, this got to be like a big uh, bummer for, for Microsoft when they're like, hey, Diablo 4 came out made a ton of money that could have been part of their business that they could be, you know, putting on their books right now. Obviously they can't, right? And and who knows when the next Blizzard game will actually come out because uh, they just, you know, just did Overwatch 2, Diablo 4 now. And it's like, well, okay, then what are we going to get out of this deal? Like 
in the short term from at least the the Blizzard side. Obviously, you know, there's Activision and King and that could release things as well. Uh, what, what do you think the FTC really gets out of doing this other than like, is it is this just like purely a political move or is this actually something where it's like, hey, we just want to look like we're doing our due diligence? I mean, cynically, I think it's a political move. I haven't read the FTC's complaint, so I'm just kind of riffing here, but like, I think it's political um, just based on the other actions that they've taken, um, looking at some of the the deals that they've tried to block in recent memory. I don't know, like, you know, every, all the analysis that I've read, if you did your due diligence, you would let the deal go through, right? Like the, all the, the hangups have been about like cloud gaming and speculation as to the future of cloud gaming's market trajectory. And, oh, Microsoft is like, you know, preemptively dominating this market that doesn't really exist. Like to me, that's the like crime of due diligence is like blocking it on shaky grounds. Um, so I don't know. That's my cynical perspective. But again, I haven't read their specific complaint. Yeah, but I, I kind of feel the same. Like it's like, okay, we will allow the deal later, but we make this move now to pretend that uh, we are really like not uh, in favor of that from the very beginning and that we are going to do a very thorough due diligence to let them go through. Yeah, it seemed like with the with like especially the, the the previous stuff around Call of Duty and then the stuff around cloud gaming, it seems more like everyone's just trying to get concessions from Microsoft, like get them to like negotiate more and more and more. Like, okay, we'll do this. Okay, we'll do that. Okay, we'll we'll give this. And it's like, is everyone just trying to like get Microsoft to give something out to everyone on the way? Like, you know, sorry, we got to like pseudo bribe all of these organizations by making concessions in some way or another. And it feels like a lot like U.S. politics, like what we had with the debt ceiling and everything like that, where it's just like, you know, fighting over who can get the most concessions out of it so that it looks like they did, you know, they did their job and it was like, hey, we got what we wanted, even if it was more than we deserved. It does feel very political and it does feel like maybe Sony controlled the narrative more than Microsoft did, even though they were not a party to the deal. Which is weird because they're like not really a U.S. company so much as Microsoft is. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of weird for that if that was the case. I mean, it may, that would make more sense, I think, for the EU potentially. But I mean, it's hard to say, right? We don't really know what goes on like behind a lot of those doors. But uh, I got to imagine too, like this is this is probably not great for. I mean, we we focus on the the Microsoft side, but Activision Blizzard King have obviously got to deal with like this whole thing as well in terms of you know if people were planning to move on when the acquisition happened like job wise or get promotions or some kind of reorg happening like that's just continually delayed as well i got to imagine it has some impact on work it's it's you know on some level to some of the employees both at microsoft and activision blizzard yeah. i i but i got i think everyone here is like is optimistic it'll close right that this is just like again just another speed bump and another speed bump um i i know is there anyone left at this point that could add one more speed bump or are we are we through the gauntlet of everyone at this point that's what i guess that's what i wonder is like can we expect more speed bumps or we're like okay as soon as this is done we can move on from this topic i think the us and the uk are the biggest remaining speed bumps i think they've cleared the hurdles of any other major markets like it was approved by the eu it was approved in japan it was approved in korea um, and I don't China know if it's been approved in China or not. China, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, well. Hopefully, that's it then. Hopefully, we've got everyone at this point signed on the dotted line, <laughs> uh, and we can just get the FTC through so we can we can move on from that topic. But uh, speaking of regulation and and jumping through hurdles and speed bumps, uh, we got Roblox actually trying to accommodate seventeen plus with a little bit of verification. Yeah, th- this is a really quick update. Um, I, I thought it was interesting. Um, Roblox announced just the other day that they're going to start allowing experiences on the platform that are catered specifically to users 17 and older. And they're allowing users to verify their age by taking a selfie and uploading a copy of their ID. Um, so just another move by Roblox to kind of age up their audience and, and, you know, provide services that, um, go along with that. Um, you know, I'll be interested to see what, if any sort of new experiences come out of this on Roblox. 
Um, they're not like they're not going full rated R. Like there's still some things that are prohibited. Like I, I'm pretty sure extreme violence, um, nudity, sexual content. That's all still prohibited. But like things like alcohol use um, or profanity, I think they've loosened up the guidelines on for these experiences. You know, one thing I thought was kind of interesting, and maybe you guys will disagree with me, but like usually in my experience, platforms allow you to restrict content through like child settings rather than allowing content through adult settings. This is kind of like a reverse approach. Uh, and I'm wondering if you, if you, if you think this is the right approach for Roblox to go in that opposite direction, given their audience, or would it be easier to just like top down, like, you know, these are child accounts, everything else is turned off. I don't know. I just thought it was a little bit odd, but maybe I'm grasping at straws here. For me, yeah, it seems like it's the, the, the opposite approach that you will usually take. But it's true that normally, uh, like, you don't have, like, maybe such a large user base of, like, younger people uh, as your main audience, right? So in this case, I think, like, uh, they are maybe fearing that if they take that approach, there could be a lot of concerns about it, like many kids having access to this uh, content immediately and like maybe there because normally I this I don't this is done by parents that hand over right. uh, the access and then they limit it and then hand over the access right but I think like many parents are just not checking on Roblox because they think it's a safe platform and they just allow the, the kids to play there but if they do that move then they will need to and many many people want realize that they need to do that, right? So I think that that's maybe the approach that they, they are taking. I, I could see that there would be a lot of friction because like, that's something that, I don't know, uh, maybe you need to, to do to invest in some platforms or other platforms that really need some age verification. And it's like from the user perspective, it's, it's uh, a lot of friction. So unless the, the content that they are offering for this uh, group is really, really valuable. And maybe I believe that there will be most of the people not, not validating their, yeah, their ideas. Yeah, that's a good point The about friction. And it's I guess it's really more targeted at like their existing audience that is aging up rather than bringing in new users who may also be 17 and older already because like the content doesn't really exist yet to attract them. And there's that friction of having to verify your identity. Um, one little bit that I read also um, was about like the ability for Roblox to start doing more with ads. So if you are verified 17 plus, then they know, okay, you've opted into, or you were allowed to serve you certain types of ads. Whereas if you're under that age, you, you can't be served ads. So might be another yeah. angle there for Roblox, but. Yeah, okay. interesting point. Or, or the type of ads. So maybe, maybe this alcohol and all of the stuff is not the content of the game, it's the content of the ads that you're <laughs> going to be sold. Well, let us know if you see any beer ads on Roblox. I would like to see that. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to imagine then they've got to worry about too, like not just age, but where you're located. Like different states have yeah. different laws, for example, in the US. And like there's the whole thing about like advertising to minors in different ways and advertising to even like like we, we're talking about alcohol, right? But like we're talking about 17 plus and drinking age in the US is 21. So yeah. like you're not even within drinking age when you're like verifying this, right? Like unless you verify that you're 21 or over. So it seems like a messy thing to be dipping into. I mean, I've seen seen already like even when, when Meta tries to do stuff with like the Facebook Messenger for kids and like the weird stuff, it, the segregation ends up causing new kinds of problems. And so I got to imagine like, yeah, first off, like they would have gone this backwards approach because like you don't want to implement this stuff till you have to, right? Like, and you can't verify younger kids age because they don't have IDs stuff like that, right? You don't have an ID till you're a certain age anyways. So they're not going to bring in like, here's my elementary school sixth grade ID in my, my yearbook photo or something. Like how are they going to verify it? Uh, so they can only verify people that like are, you know, with, within a certain age threshold. But I got to also imagine like this is going to cause like uh, segregation between the, the age group. So let's say I'm 16 and I've got a friend who's 17 plus. He can verify, he can go play the mature content. Now I can't come play with him, right? And Roblox is inherently very social and kind of tribal. Like people coming, you know, they're playing with their friends or hanging out with their friends. And imagine suddenly there's like lobbies where they, they're hanging out, like 
you know, even if it's a game, it's still kind of treated like a lobby. Now they can't hang out with their younger friends. It's almost like, you know, like the seniors at high school that, that don't hang out with the younger grades and just that weird kind of dynamic. I can't imagine that's going to be beneficial to Roblox. Like by, by having this kind of thing, I like, yeah, they're capturing like the potential for more mature content, but does anyone really like want that on there? And is that just going to like actually hurt the platform long-term in terms of, again, the segregation or like just like, do you really want like say professional studios coming in and developing like mature content on Roblox for like kids that are just barely old enough? That seems like a problematic thing to be doing on that platform as opposed to say going over to Fortnite creative or something where the audience is already like a bit more aged up. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I, I don't know. I view it as more of like, if they want to have um, content that appeals to an older audience, this is a step that they need to take. Like, setting aside the specifics of how you verify your age, like they need to have certain guardrails in place, right? Like just to comply with various laws around the world. And, you know, to your point about like, do they want studios to come in and build like, you know, professional mature content? Like, I don't know, probably not, but like they do want professional developers to come in and make content. And if that content happens to be like on the edge, they need to have guardrails in place to protect their users. So I think they're they're kind of like um, opening up the platform in different ways to make sure that they're checking all their boxes and covering all their bases. And this is just like a way to allow, like an administrative step to allow that so that they're compliant with all the, the laws and they don't like run afoul of any regulators. That's kind of the way I look at it. I got to imagine too, it's going to be like worked around by kids constantly. Like you're just going to like log into your older brother's account uh, or the, there's a thing. So like, uh, it reminds me of um, in China when they were trying to crack down on minors playing games uh, during school nights and things like that. They had that whole thing where you could only play like for like three hours on like a weekend or whatever. Like, I don't remember the exact details, but it was some weird, highly restrictive thing. Kids started using their, like, cause they had to like do the, the face thing and they started using like their, their, older brother's IDs and things like yeah, that. And like, yeah. and I remember seeing that in esports as well. Like uh, in, in esport, you know, I was involved with that required you to be 18. There were certain players who were not actually 18 and they were using like their older brother's ID because they, they looked, you know, similar enough and, you know, people change during puberty anyways. So it's, it's hard to like verify that. You mentioned like a selfie, but it's like, if that's not a live face scan, or, you know, with the, the complex ones, they're like verifying it's 3D and like infrared and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. It seems like this is like, you know, the, you know, uh, Roblox acting like, hey, we're we're covering our bases, but like, we know no one's really going to be actually doing this. It's like <laughs> hanging outside the liquor store and getting adults to buy alcohol for you, like kind of thing where it's just everyone's going to work around it anyways. Can I imagine? Well, to, be, to be fair to Roblox, we haven't seen it in action yet. It's brand new, but I agree with you, Devin, that there will almost certainly be a great market for these kind of things because, um, you know, kids, kids are clever and they're going to find ways around it. But I'll be interested to see how it plays out. Definitely. I'm also be interested to find out like what the exact details of, of what kind of content they delineate as like 17 plus. Cause obviously like you said, they're, they're not extreme violence and not, no pornography, stuff like that. Like a lot of the stuff that's typically associated with like mature rating stuff is probably not part of it. So then it's like, well, then what is like, what, what was just barely over the edge that's now slightly allowed? Uh, and will people like constantly with the moderation teams be struggling with that? And like, are they opening up Pandora's box on dealing with types of problematic content because of that being like difficult to explain to these 17 plus year old creators what they can and can't make? So I don't know. I think that's kind of like a wait and see sort of thing, right? But it seems like this this might be more problematic than uh, than I imagine. They're hoping that's probably why they've been resistant to do it until kids were just aging up. And they're like, we got no choice. We got to do something to capture this audience at that point. But a, a completely different topic and something I think a little less uh, sketchy. Um, AI in games, something we've talked about quite a bit. So there's a, a little bit of a different approach here from Hidden Door in terms of using some, some public domain content for some narrative gaming. Yeah, so exactly. We have Hidden Door, uh, which has uh, launched uh, playtest for a new AI-based game. Uh, so basically it's based on the... Wizard of Oz, uh, that as far as I know, is like a public IP. Um, and the, the more than a game is a platform uh, where you can uh, do role-playing uh, with the support of uh, AI 
both for the narrative and like kind of a choices game. So the, the, the AI will give you uh, choices and then you can select one of them or even you can type the action that you would like to, to take. And then there are some, some narrative de- developing and then well, again, you can take action. You can interact with uh, other NPCs. And also you can customize the experience with uh, the use of uh, generative AI uh, for image generation. As far as I know, this is like kind of very controlled by them. So like all the style and, and the assets are uh, coherent to the same art style. So basically uh, the platform, as far as I've seen, is that you, you have some uh, cards that you can play this, like kind of build the the setting for you so you can set like a location a, a role and some some uh, initial setting and then based on that the, nar- the ai will generate the narrative and uh, you will be interacting with that they claim that this is like a social experience but uh, as far as i've seen in the description i haven't seen it much social in the sense that it looks like you play solo but that you build this uh, story and this worldview and then you can share with others so that's i think like is the the social component of it and the full game is set to the boat in in the winter this year and the plans for the company is to showcase the capabilities of the platform with this ip but then open it up for partnerships with other other ips so they can extend their worlds uh, and make them more interactive uh, through through their uh, through their platform, so they they are planning to have some deals with IP holders to bring their stories to the platform. I guess uh, before they 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 release the the full the full game in, in this winter, and the company is only thirteen people uh, and has raised like nine million funding uh, so far. Um, and yeah, I don't know how do you see it. I think it's quite uh, an interesting idea, maybe the most obvious, because right now uh, we know that text AI and 2D uh, AI are the ones that are more developed. So it's kind of merging the two of them to try to give like more customization and personalization to uh, a game. Uh, so for me, it seems like quite an interesting idea. What I, it surprised me is that they've been developing this for three years already. So it's not like they just saw that there is this advancements in AI in these fields and they tried to merge it like recently, but they've been really uh, working heavily on this and training their specific uh, language model to really make sure that the stories are, uh, I would say, appealing and that it doesn't go off rails because of the choices that you make. And uh, well, so what, what do you think of this approach? I mean, I know AI Dungeons has been around for a while, so I kind of wonder if that was more the inspiration than the chat GPT stuff, right? Was there any mention of like uh, what like tools or, or methods they're using? I mean, it sounds like you, you said they were training their own models, but like, are they using something off the shelf? Are they just building it from scratch? Because like AI Dungeon, I believe, was like more custom stuff, uh, maybe maybe sort of a little bit different than GPT-3, which was like the current thing at the time. Like, Was there any mention of any tooling? No, I haven't. I haven't seen anything. They mentioned that they they have some AI engineers, and uh, that there were people that uh, I think that even the founder before this uh, was uh, also working with uh, artificial intelligence and like deep learning in the past. So I think that this is maybe like the result of a long story working with uh, with AI tools and machine learning and. Yeah, they've come to this, but I haven't seen any mention to like leveraging any of the existing AI tools to to do this. Yeah, I um I had the same thought as you, Devin, that it feels a lot like AI Dungeon, but maybe like more on Rails. Um, AI Dungeon, you kind of go anywhere and do whatever you want with text generation, but you don't have. Uh, to my knowledge, it's been a little little bit since I've played AI Dungeon, but you don't have the ability to sort of s- store memory of like items and characters and things like that in the way that it sounds like um, Hidden Door does. Um, to me, this is it looks pretty cool. 
Um, however, it feels like kind of a proof of concept. Let's get this out there, get it in players' hands, use this, you know, public domain IP and see how it does. And like, what do people respond to and what don't they respond to? You know, the, the article talks about, this is a Venture Beat article, talks about like, they're going to work exclusively with um, public IP or um, IPs that they can strike deals with in um, fiction, like narrative fiction. Um, so, you know, that ideally gets around some of the legal issues and copyright issues. Um, but it does, I, I agree with you, Felipe, like uh, it's not really clear to me where like the social part comes from. Um, they say it's like a social, like story driven thing, but I don't know how you incorporate multiplayer into this. M maybe it's not going to come into this game. It's a future game, but I don't know. To me, it's cool, but it's a proof of concept and mm -hmm. like a wait and see for me. Maybe the social just meant like sharing the stories about what happened in your game, like Could that be, sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, like when everyone meant social and it was like share with your Facebook uh, feed or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. yeah, we were speaking about Roblox. That's like maybe a truly social experience compared to this. Yeah, I got to wonder like if, if the demo is is here more about their ability to put the rails on uh, because it sounds like they're trying to go for the, like the IP, right? Where they're like, hey, we're demonstrating that we can actually handle an IP in a responsible way that you couldn't by just slapping chat GPT on it, right? Like that they that they put three years of work into figuring out how do we make this first off actually work like a game, like you mentioned, uh, Matt, you know, like inventories and other game like sorts of uh, widgets that you wouldn't get through just a pure imaginative narrative text thing, right? And then, I mean, it reminds me of Choose Your Own Adventure books that started like developing like inventory tracking and like and stat rolling and things like that over time, like Lone Wolf series and all that. Uh, you know, as people figured out ways to do that, same kind of idea, right? Like just kind of hacking these things onto this text generation engine. But it sounds more like they're trying to prove like we can responsibly handle an IP as a pitch to like get a big IP to sponsor this or not sponsor, but like, you know, pay for these experiences. And it's like, is that just narrative advert gaming, right? Like, like the old flash advert gaming days, are we going to see like explore the, you know, the, the, the Cheeto world with Chester, like just weird stuff yeah. like that. I, I got to imagine like there's only so much content you can do narrative wise with an IP without like a huge, huge amount of, of text, right? Because uh, let's say like, you know, Wizard of Oz has quite a bit of text to it, right? Uh, mm -hmm. A situation where it's like a lot for it to digest, but I got to imagine they're not incorporating lots of stuff from the outside world because that would make it difficult to have the rails, right? So they're not like ChatGPT where it's got this knowledge of like huge, huge amounts of information because you do that and it's very hard to put the rails on and not have it talk about like, hey, I'm playing a Pepsi game and it starts talking about Coke. Right, you got to worry about that kind of thing. Uh, but you know, like, if you're making a Pepsi game, like, how much how much content can you give it to where it's like, okay, I could play for like five minutes, and you know, this Pepsi game's done because I I ran out of stuff to do because there's just not enough content. Like, I mean, do you think these are the kinds of things they're they're tackling? Or I think that's it's interesting. That idea of like advert gaming is is pretty interesting. I don't get the impression that that's what they're tackling just from reading this article. Who knows? Um, you know, it seems like they want to work with like narrative based stuff rather than, you know, commercial, um, uh, you know, brands or whatever. It doesn't mean they can't do it, I guess, but you know, uh, like there are plenty of, plenty of IPs like this out there, right? Like there's Harry Potter, there's Hunger Games, there's Lord of the Rings. There's like all these kind of like narrative based IPs that have gone on to spawn other properties. Um, so, you know, to your point, if they can prove that they're a good steward of this open source IP, uh, or of this public domain IP rather, um, then they can come to these bigger brands and say like, look, we're going to take care of your IP. We're not going to, um, allow players to do something crazy that you would never allow. But again, it's probably like a push and pull, right? Like as a brand, and I'm speculating here, but as a brand, you probably have to be willing to allow some flexibility in these um, AI driven platforms to where like even the people who are running the platform and operating it don't necessarily know all the possibilities for what could come out the other end. So like you have to have some level of comfort with the unknown as an IP holder probably. And again, that's why it's helpful for them to start with a public domain IP to where like, hey, it's out there. No one's going to sue us if we get it wrong. We're going to do our best and we'll see what happens.
Are we going to see people turning Wizard of Oz into Hitler, like, immediately on release? I don't imagine that's the audience they're going for here. But, I mean, like, you look at what happened with, like, Winnie the Pooh, and they made that, like, Winnie the Pooh horror movie or whatever. Like, you know, you could imagine something similar with this sort of IP. But, I don't know, the vibe they're going for here, as Felipe said, is more like Choices episodes, I get the impression. So, you know, you can imagine a similar audience would be their target demographic. Yeah, I think maybe the, the difference here is that the, with the use of IPs, you can really broaden that to everybody that enjoys reading, but want to take a more active role into that story. So feel part of like uh, the decisions and and not like maybe the like choices that feels like it's more like a very specific target audience. Because uh, if we, the, for instance, the, the IPs that you mentioned, Matt, that this huge IPs and also like the people are not just consuming them on the films or games. It's also like books are like maybe to most of them is where all of them started. So it feels like a good type of audience that could fit these narrative games where you still need to read a lot, but now you have a kind of a, a say there. What is interesting for me is what you were mentioning because the, the, the business model for them is not clear, right? So they, they don't, they don't monetize, they didn't mention about how they are going to monetize the platform. So I don't know if their intention is to become big enough at some point that brands will be the ones paying to get their IPs there rather than like people being the ones that pay to consume. Or maybe they have like, I don't know, kind of subscription model where you can access all the books that are there. How how much game can you actually put in that though? Like, you know, you're talking about like inventory and things like that, but it, it's like, if it's something more along the lines of making dialogue choices, like how much game can you have there first off, like as an actual game versus just a choose your own adventure and how much of that just ends up extremely repetitive over time? Like how many novel uh, storylines can you generate from, from just one set of content before it's generating basically the same stories over and over? Like, I mean, Either of you have had a, who've had experience with these kind of tools, like how realistic do you think generating a game or even like a, a light sandbox really is for these types of tools? Yeah, indeed. There is one one extra thing is that they kind of try to get all the stories to really live within the original IP. So that's also another limitation. So it's not like now I can just go and. Uh, I don't know, change it completely, right? And uh, have a completely different story. It should be coherent with the initial world. And that's indeed what I think, as you say, is a peer movement to try to attract other brands. Like, okay, we are not going to spoil your IP or like the worldview of your IP because like in this game, you will be able to do something completely opposite to what's really the real story, right? So I don't know exactly how much a space do you have to really allow players for customization and creativity without really going completely against the original story? To, I mean, to your point, Devin, like some of these other games like AI Dungeon, they're, they're cool and they're novelties, but they don't have like a compelling loop to where like I do this so that I can do that so that I can earn this thing. Um, and so like with AI, you can just kind of endlessly go down that thread and see where it takes you. And that's like kind of interesting and you're curious to where it might lead, but then you kind of get the idea, you know, the challenge will be creating a compelling loop where I participate in the story, I make a choice and then it leads me to another choice. And then, you know, like I'm earning something or I'm getting some rewards and that helps me progress. or that helps me you know, whatever there's players have different motivations, but there needs to be a loop and like a, a compulsion for coming back. Um, you know, otherwise it's just kind of like a, a fun little tech toy or novelty. Right. I mean, that brings up something you guys mentioned earlier about business models. And it makes me kind of wonder, like, um, let's say it is a consumer facing business model in terms of like, they're getting the money from the consumer and not from like the IP holder. Right. Um, and in that situation, you know, normally in games, we're selling content, right? Like in some way or another, right? You're selling that, that content. In this case, it's generating content, right? So you're not selling that. Uh, so then there's like, I, I, I think of two approaches and let me know what you guys think, think of these or what, maybe there's other options. Is like one is that you're, you know, continuing to feed it new bits of content that can like help expand where it can go, things like that. So like, it's still kind of like live ops a little bit 
in terms of like providing new pieces of information that allow it to generate new things, like new scenarios, whatever. The other way is just like, hey, you create enough loops that people play that novelty long enough, but they're paying like a subscription model. So they could keep doing it like with the way people do with like, say the virtual like girlfriend, uh, you know, kind of toys or those other ones where it's like something that could string them along for a long enough period of time where they're just willing to pay for a subscription to that. Do you guys think there's like other possible business models for this around the content or, uh, you know, microtransactions? Like how, how would people monetize this? I, I mean, I, I think that they might not know the answer tr- truly. Like they might just be kind of putting this out there. Let's see what our engagement metrics are first make sure that this is a compelling product and then we'll figure out monetization. But to your point, like those are all options. They could do in-app purchases. Like I, I may be misremembering here, but I think episodes used to do like a, uh, an option where you had like a premium choice where you could, I don't know if you pay per choice or you have some currency or you have a subscription or whatever, but they had like special choices that were usually like the, the most like risque choices um, that were premium. Um, so like, that's one way to do it. You could, they could do like, um, um, sort of paid DLC, if you will. So like the first one is wizard of Oz, that's free. But if you want the Winnie, Winnie the Pooh and Christopher Robin, that's like, you know, 99 cents. And if you want Lord of the Rings, that's five bucks, whatever, like, you know, they can charge by these like expansion packs, if you will. Um, I'm sure there's a number of ways that they could do it. Yeah. I think like there is a RPG component here. So, and part of that is like the cards that you you could play to uh, I, I was assuming that is not only to kick off the the story by setting a location I mean like the buy for the characters but also maybe I don't know, some extra cards that you can play later so you can play also with that by having some basic cards that you will unlock as you play and that's part of the normal free-to-play loop but then you can have like I don't know uh, rare cards or premium cards that would maybe allow you to set settings or locations and situations that will be more exciting. And that's, those are the ones that you could uh, play. And uh, also if there is an RPG component, always like advancing that faster. So uh, paying for time, let's say like that, is something that also could work. So if you could level up your character faster by speeding up. I guess I could see even like individual content paywalled as well. Like let's say they wanted to pick particular characters that they're, that they won't be in your stories unless you pay to like, Oh, sorry. Like you're playing Harry Potter, but Dumbledore won't be part of any of your stories unless you unlock him. Right. Or like, or uh, specific Hmm. locations, for example, like where you're basically paying to like include areas of content uh, that you want as part of your story, like that that you want to be able to play with. Um, So I I guess there's a lot of options here. And I I really look forward to seeing like, is there a business model that makes sense with this? Or is this just like uh, you were saying, Matt, just kind of toys, novelties, like where they're just going to like, let's just play around with it. Because AI Dungeon kind of already did that, as you pointed out, like, and has been around for a while, hasn't really figured out a great business model other than like maybe subscriptions that like give you a little, like uh, maybe faster processing, expand what you could do, but it's very minor, right? Um, it, It seems like this is like a, you know, one of those things where people haven't really figured out what the the right thing to do with it is yet. They just know it's cool. And they want to do something with it. And I think, I mean, I think we're all excited about that, right? The one thing that didn't sound super clear is like whether or not uh, players are actually like typing out what they want to do or if they're choosing, right? Like if it's generating, say, three choices and you're picking one of those or if you're actually typing, because there's ones where you could type, right? I could see situations where I've tried ones where like I'll just specifically reject everything it tries to get me to do and I'll just go on a completely different direction. And just abandon everything it tries to give you content-wise. And it's like, how does it handle those kinds of things if it just lets you do whatever you want? Or, or does it sound like it was going to go the direction of, we're going to generate choices and you're going to be able to pick from those? As, as far as I wrote, uh, it, it says that you could also add your own by typing. So I don't know how, how much freedom you could have on that, but... But yeah, it supposedly gives you the the option, which it also gives me this thought that uh, like will be like AI generated with infinite options, like really the best experience for the players. So, I mean, like players without really wanting could spoil their experience and like have like mm. you know, narratives that are less interesting or that, that they reach to a dead end sooner. And they don't enjoy the full experience, right? So. That's for me the thing that I feel like AI in some some way is really interesting because it opens many options, but also I don't know if like having many options is the best solution and like 
at least maybe some curating options uh, it would be the best because then you will have like a experience that is better for most of the people. Just going off um, some of the images in the VentureBeat article, like this is not science here, but like it says, um, there, there's an example it shows like, what do you do? And it says type to search, which uh, implies to me that it's not purely natural language, but you're selecting from a bunch of options. And then there's, they give you some sample options. So like if you imagine an interface like um, LinkedIn messages or, or Gmail, where like it gives you quick snippets that you can kind of plug in. Um, that's kind of what they have here. So like you have an objective and then it gives you a few like preset options for what to do. Jump in the lake, shatter the gem, beg the witch for mercy. And then you can also type to search, um, presumably from many more options. But again, I'm just riffing off of like the art that they've shared in the VentureBeat article. I don't know if that's exactly how it's going to work in practice, um, but it doesn't seem to be purely natural language. Sounds like a text adventure game, but with like generative content mixed in at the end of the day, right? Where it was just like, if you guys remember the old ones, like there were just verb noun combinations and stuff like that, where it was like, you know, simple rules for you know, like prior to the the graphic adventure games. Um, where If it's just like that again, then maybe we're ending up going backwards, but with the ability to generate content on the fly. Um, but okay. I, I gotta, gotta imagine if a company like this though, like could crack this sort of thing, right? Where they could figure out like a, an engine that works well for this and it be a repeatable thing that could be like a very like powerful thing to license and sell on its own to other people. Like, like I mentioned, so we, um, in, in role-playing games, right? Tabletop role-play games, you have the dungeon masters and there's good dungeon masters, bad dungeon masters. Right. And so like you imagine you have an AI in this situation that, uh, you know, you, you teach to be a good dungeon master, right? There's certain like rules and you can find like, there's tons of books on how to be a good dungeon master, right? Like if you were to give it, those books and teach it like, here's how you guide an adventure. Well, here's how you generate content that would be fun to play. If someone could crack that sort of thing and put that into an engine, I got to imagine there's potential for a business model there. Um, you know, like where it's like, it's got its kind of rules and guidelines, which does sound like at least they're kind of going that direction in terms of the guidelines for like, at least trying to protect IP. But I, I'm not sure about like, you know, making a game fun, quote unquote. I don't know. Seems, it seems like a lot of possibility there. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Like, uh, it sounds like winter was the uh, kind of deadline, which means, you know, pretty late this year. So I, I got to imagine this won't be the last one we'll see like this as well, right? Like uh, everyone's trying to jump into this boat right now, so, but maybe hasn't been doing it for three years. But uh, <clears throat> we've got a, a, another interesting uh, kind of twist here uh, going into EA, uh, so, something that's, uh, I think, your domain as well, Matt, uh, splitting up basically reorging into sports and entertainment. So what does that mean? Yeah, well, I'll just like bury the lead here and and say, well, not even bury the lead, just like kind of come up front and say, I'm not really sure what it means. And we're going to kind of talk about it. But um, uh, I guess like a, a quick sort of caveat or uh, note for clarification is I used to work at EA. So I have some bias on this. And like, if there's one thing that EA likes, it's a good reorg. Um, so the, the headline here is that they've s sort of re reorganized and split out EA Sports and what they're calling EA Entertainment. Um, and so there's also a bit of shakeup in the C-suite, which I'll get into in a minute. But like um, EA Sports is now, you know, kind of very similar to what it was before. It's EAFC, which is FIFA, NHL, Madden, F1, PGA, Super mm -hmm. Mega Baseball, and their upcoming college football reboot. Um, probably UFC as well. I'm, I'm sure I'm missing some stuff in there. Uh, and then EA Entertainment is kind of all the non-sports IPs. It's Respawn, it's Dice, it's Ridgeline, which is working on Battlefield, uh, Full Circle, which is working on Skate, uh, Motive Studio, EA Seattle, Bioware, uh, their EA Originals label. And not 100% clear to me, but it sounds like all of the mobile titles are also going under EA Entertainment, which we'll come back to in a little bit. Um, so I mentioned at the top, there, there's a shakeup um, in the C-suite. So the CFO is leaving. Um, it sounds like he's going to Visa. So if you like finance, it's hard to come by a better opportunity um, for a CFO. So he's leaving after a, a short tenure. And then the chief experience officer is retiring and is being replaced by the former CMO. Um, Laura Miele, the uh, former COO, is now becoming EA president of entertainment technology and central development. Uh, and there are a couple of other sort of moves at the top there. Um, so 
Yeah, a, a lot of changes in organization. I, I don't know that it's necessarily clear on the front lines how this impacts employees. Um, you know, I still have some friends there that work um, on the mobile side, and like they're not really sure what it means for them yet either. It's, it's fresh news. Uh, I'm sure it will trickle down soon. To me, I think um, a couple of things stuck out. So one was was what's happening with mobile. Um, mobile has historically been a challenge for EA, let's say. And uh, it's not clear to me from this announcement like how mobile fits into the organization. Uh, it used to be that mobile was like its own like sort of separate part of the business. Um, and now it sounds like it's under EA Entertainment. But what happens to like the sports mobile games? Um, you know, I get the impression they don't really mention it in the articles, but I get the impression from some of their previous moves that EA is kind of trying to realign around IPs and franchises. So, you know, when they when they um, shut down um, Industrial Toys and uh, Apex Mobile like a few months back, you know, one of the things that that Andrew Wilson said at the time was like, look, we're we want to do um, cross play on these big IPs in the future and like have this like cross platform like ecosystem for Battlefield and Apex and whatever. And like that's obviously like many years into the future, but um, that was like what they said at the time. And so inferring from that, I, you know, I imagine that's something that they want to do with Skate, with Madden, with FIFA, whatever, like with all their franchises coming up. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, it's not clear to me whether mobile is a part of the EA entertainment organization or if mobile is like this central team that kind of coordinates across entertainment and sports, depending on the game that they're working on. And they're more of just like a platform specific um like branch of the business. I don't know. It's uh, that, that was one thing that I wanted to kind of discuss with you guys. So maybe, maybe I'll pause there and we'll come back to the second topic in a little bit. Like, what do you think this means for the company's strategic priorities going forward, whether mobile or otherwise? And like, how, how do you, how do you read into this? What do you think? Well, I would say that maybe mobile is also going to be split because as, as you said, like if they are going to really, focus on cross-platform experiences. Uh, it doesn't make sense to have mobile as a department and being in one or the other. Like all the two will need to have like their mobile division to to create like the, the mobile experiences, right? Like uh, maybe, I'm not sure you're referring to existing mobile games that won't be ported as cross-platform as, as a division. And in that case, yeah, maybe that sits down within entertainment because for what I understood from reading the news is that uh, uh, they, this may also, uh, it's a move to open to other type of, uh, uh, I, would, I don't know, entertainment experiences. And that's why even yeah. it's called like that. So not just focusing on games, but also on other types or not digital games only. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I think, yeah, you raise an interesting point about the entertainment uh, bit that I, I want to come back to. Um, but with regards to mobile, I guess we could split it up into two buckets. There's kind of standalone titles. So Star Wars, Galaxy of Heroes, the new Lord of the Rings, um, the glue portfolio that's still around like Kim Kardashian um, and a few of those, those type of games. And then there's like, um, so, so we might call those like standalone games and then there's what you might call evergreen games, which would be like Madden, FIFA, um, maybe NBA if they ever bring that back, like games that kind of, they constantly keep running and I don't see them like shutting down FIFA or Madden anytime soon. Um, whereas you could say like galaxy of heroes or Kim Kardashian, like those have probably a finite lifespan at some point. Like they've been going for a long time, but you know, if EA's strategy is to kind of move away from these um, mobile experiences and go more cross-platform, well, then that's like kind of their cash cow portfolio that they'll eventually sunset, and then they'll focus on the ones that have a, a PC or console like extension or counterpart. Um, so, I mean, that, that's kind of the way you might like bucket out their mobile portfolio presently. But you make an interesting point about entertainment. Um, they have made some uh, sort of forays in that direction. They did a Sims like reality show a year or two ago. There was something I saw they were going to do like a Dragon Age anime or something like that. 
Um, so they're definitely like experimenting with some of this kind of transmedia stuff. And maybe there's something to um, splitting out entertainment. Maybe they're seeing the success of Arcane and uh, Witcher and Cyberpunk and things like that that have gone to, to Netflix and other platforms. Um, there was also, if you recall, rumors in the past about EA doing some potential merger or acquisition with NBCU, like a more traditional entertainment company. Um, so, and, hey, by the way, I'm purely speculating here, but like if they're splitting out sports and entertainment, like maybe there is an opportunity if they are still like investigating mergers and acquisition to split the company and take one or the other with whichever company acquires them. Um, I'm sure like their sports franchise is incredibly valuable, right? Um, and you look at, you know, some of these big tech companies are trying to get more involved in sports, vice versa, like the entertainment uh, portfolio. Like they've got, they've got Star Wars, they've got Marvel, they've got, you know, Battlefield and some other things here. Like maybe that's appealing to some of the more like traditional entertainment incumbents. Again, I'm like wildly speculating here, but um, this was the other topic I wanted to touch on was like, what does the split mean for the company's future? Is there more to this entertainment thing? Um, is there more to sports that they want to do? Like we saw news recently about the NFT, um, like the Nike NFT integration in uh, FIFA. Um, I don't know. There's, there's a lot there. So what do you, what do you all make of it? I don't know. Like also sometimes you do the opposite move to be more efficient, right. And to, uh, like have served functions that support, uh, the, more efficiently the the whole business, right? So I don't know how that's going to uh, be solved now that this is split. I feel like also you will get maybe more more focused, and it would be easier maybe to uh, discuss budgets and locate them, and like it's something that you can really compare. So I don't know, like uh, FIFA and uh, the the other sports games. So which is the their sizes and which is their audiences and the this is like really like to like comparison and then you can really maybe balance the numbers better. Uh, so I don't know if that's part of even of the intention so they can be more focused on, on these games and uh, kind of like maybe the business model is more uh, repetitive uh, because it's year after year you just uh, have to update the, the squads and, and all that and leaving the others be more creative. I don't know. It's, it seems like there could be also potential for problems if they normally had any kind of team members that worked both types of games. Like, let's say, I, oh, I work on the Star Wars game for a while, but then I'm also going to, like, help with Madden, right? Like, now that doesn't maybe work as well because you split the teams up. Maybe they, maybe that's not an issue for them at all. Maybe everything is very isolated. But I'm thinking of, like, obviously it's, like, over at Activision, not EA, but, like, you know, the three different studios working on Call of Duties and having to help each other and, and all that stuff. Or, like, the way, like, Ubisoft will tend to shift people after every project over to other projects between their studios and things like that. It seems like if, if they really do have, like, a clear line of separation, like, hey, all the annual games have dedicated teams, and we don't have crossover. We're not bringing over our creative types. It's more just these specifically type of people. And it's good to kind of we're like silo them because like, oh, hey, this is all the people using the mocap tech and doing the annual stuff and handling the, the card style, like ultimate team kind of things. And like it, it, if it makes sense to silo that business and they have a lot of overlap maybe between those games, but not across the other games, I could see some benefit there. But I do wonder, like, are they going to potentially add friction to like sharing stuff. Like I remember when, you know, when they would like push their engine, like oh, everyone's got to use frostbite for everything or, you know, things like that, where if they try and push cross stuff, even if it's not like, if they're just using the same engine for the sports games as for like a, a racing game or a skating game, like, is that going to be then problematic? I, I, I mean, I, I imagine they've thought through this stuff, but like, yeah, I mean, not, not really mentioned in the articles is anything to do with like the tech part of the organization. Um, there was no, you know, shakeups mentioned in that, that org. And like to your point about shared resources, like certainly they're going to share, um, you know, like the mocap stuff that you mentioned, analytics resources, um, central technologies, like these I imagine have to remain shared, but these are like the, these are the people who are going to be working across sports and entertainment, I would think. Uh, whereas like more of the creative talent, the people working on direct development uh, of the titles uh, are less likely 
to be crossing over. Um, but again, like, you know, we talked about like mobile, where does that sit? Like that could be one that kind of sits in the middle. Um, you know, the mobile team, when I was there, like they had sort of centralized resources. Um, and there's like a central product team, there's, there's central analytics, there's, you know, a mobile leadership team and so on. Like how do those get split up over entertainment and sports? I don't know. It's unclear. Um, but I know that I mentioned that EA does a lot of reorgs, but I thought that this was worth mentioning because it seemed like, while it's unclear, it does seem like a rather large reorg um, at the very top um, and not just something that's limited to like a couple of C-suites getting new titles. I guess I wonder at that point if it's in a financial thing, like if we're talking about like FIFA Ultimate Team, those kinds of things, just like basically printing money every year and it being like, hey, we don't want that money bleeding over to these other things that are these AAA titles that are going over budget and then maybe not coming out great. And like and for accounting purposes, it's actually better if we like have these games that are evergreen, like you said, that sell every year that we know we're making money and we don't have to worry about like accounting for them the same way because we're not doing these like three, five year development cycles on these games. You know, we're turning them out every year. Like, do you think there's like a financial purpose to, to separating those like that? I can only speculate, but probably, <laughs> probably I, I like they, they wouldn't do it without considering the financial impact. Certainly. Cool. Well, I mean, hopefully we'll find out a little bit more in the near future in terms of uh, what that actually means. Like, as you guys said, unclear for certain games, I can imagine even like certain games, it's like, uh, is it only sports games that have like a year in the name that count, right? Is, is skating or racing a sports game? You know, like those kinds of questions, hopefully we'll get some clarity on in the future, but who knows? I mean, you would know, I guess, better how, uh, how hard it is to read EA from the outside, but. That's uh, a good question. Why isn't skate in sports? So they, it's, right? Is it not extreme sports? It's only like traditional sports and racing? Well, so I'm wondering know. if it does it have to have a year attached to it? Does it have to be an <laughs> annual game to count as part of their sports like portfolio? And and that's, I got to imagine that might be a determining factor. Like, like I said, of the, the process they're going through to develop it or the financials or yeah. something maybe, but I, maybe I guess we'll see. Like licensing requirements and stuff too. Yeah. Where like you got to deal with, you know, uh, leagues and players associations and some of these other sports, but in skate, not so much. Hey, we've got a license, Tony Hawk or something, right? <laughs> got to worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Well, cool. I, a lot to look forward to a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of open questions, I guess, from the topics today, uh, you know, stuff to start to explore, but maybe a lot of unanswered questions. So maybe things we'll get to revisit in future episodes. Of course, uh, Microsoft in acquiring Activision, I, I can guarantee we will be revisiting future episodes. Uh, I don't know what, I don't Please know. No. End, Please no, we've had enough. Yeah. <laughs> to blame, blame the FTC now. Uh, but th- I want to thank you guys for, of course, coming. Uh, great to have you both as always. And I also want to thank the listener for tuning in. This is now, I believe, our 101st episode. So we celebrated the 100th last time. So uh, a lot of episodes. If you are new to the podcast, then you got a, a huge back catalog to listen to. So next time you have a long flight, download them all. Go through that. Uh, but in the meantime, I also want to remind everyone about the, the email for uh, the mailbag. If you have any feedback, questions, comments, things you want to share, things you want us to share on the episode, uh, clarifications, things like that, uh, podcast at novic.co. Make sure to send those in. We do get those occasionally, and it's great to get that feedback or even just questions from you guys. So make sure to do that. But otherwise, uh, I will see you all next week and have a great weekend in the meantime. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.